You're listening to United on Wheels, the web's best podcast for active wheelchair users. With your host, Brooke McCall. Visit our website, www.unitedspinal.org. Good afternoon, James. Thank you for spending time with me this afternoon to discuss a little of your personal experience with the ADA. Well, it's a pleasure. And please call me Jim. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so I just really wanted to start off. Um, I know that speaking for myself and as someone who was affected by disability, it was definitely more than a decade um, beyond the signing of the ADA. I do find it a little bit hard to fully comprehend what wheelchair life looked like before accessibility and non-discrimination standards. Um, can I have you help enlighten us to um, why the ADA was really necessary and then explain a little what it looks like to live life pre-ADA with a disability? You know, it's, it's funny that you bring it up today because only a few days ago we did the New York City Disability Pride Parade and I was looking around as we marched, my two little granddaughters marched in the parade with us and uh, I was looking around and thinking of all the things we've done in the last 40 plus years um, as disability advocates and United Spinal Association, just curb ramps, taxis, buses, subways, accessible buildings, you know, entranceways and ramps, retrofitting buildings. So well, none of that, you know, the Bible begins, the Old Testament, in the beginning there was darkness. And I would say in the beginning there was darkness. There were no curb ramps. There was no many people. When I began doing this work, which was, well, I was a teenager and I was a counselor in a camp for disabled kids when I was 16. And I became friendly with the other people my age that were disabled and then still socialized with them all through college and law school. And I would go to a bar or a restaurant with them and people would say to me, don't put them there or don't put him there about a guy in a wheelchair. And I would say things like, well, he can talk, talk to him. But I wouldn't think there ought to be a law I would just think, isn't this person an idiot or something? But I never really thought this is a civil rights issue. Even when I was in law school, until I started reading about the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 uh, and Section 504, which prohibited discrimination, and then I realized all of the systemic discrimination directed at people with disabilities. And so this was, you know, well into the 70s by the time I thought about it. And I had been friends with disabled kids since I was, since 67, 1967. So I was pretty old already and hadn't had a political thought or a legal thought about disability. I had a friend, Paul Hearn, who you may have heard of, the Hearn Awards at AAPD, American Association of People with Disabilities, are named after him. And we were teenage friends and then went to law school, not together, but we stayed friendly. And then we worked together for Legal Services Corporation. But I met him on the street when Secretary Califano signed the first set of 504 regulations for Department of Health, Education, and Welfare in spring of 77. And I was studying for the bar exam. And he was a lawyer for one year already. And uh, we went into, uh, I lived in a loft in Lower Manhattan. Then we went in up to my loft and we spent the whole night talking about the rights of people with disabilities, the first time I ever had a conversation like that. 
Sure. For any extended length. And now, 42 years later, I'm still having those conversations every day. Um, it's changed a lot. And, and, and uh, uh, the deinstitutionalization movement of the 70s, I think, um, well, a lot of people don't realize Geraldo Rivera was a hero of that. Um, when he was a person, you know, doing substantive broadcasting, he exposed uh, Willowbrook on Staten Island, New York. He was a local reporter, and uh, he had gone to Brooklyn Law School, and he had a sense of the injustice of the warehousing of developmentally disabled people, of how horrible it was, and he exposed it, and it it swept over New York City and institutions began closing and shutting down and people being released to the community without support services, places to live, ways to travel, jobs, home care. There was this, you know, it was darkness. You couldn't get down the steps. You couldn't get off the block. Nobody would hire you. Nobody would rent to you. Paul Hearn and I wrote a grant application which Senator Javits got funded, Jacob Javits of New York to open a legal services corporation for poor people office in New York that would uh, be architecturally accessible and uh, we could get interpreter services for the deaf and large print and braille translations. Um, we got $275,000 grant. I was making $14,900 and when I passed the bar exam, 16100 so 275 went a pretty long way. It was like a million dollars uh, to us. And we got it off the ground. And we opened the doors. And uh, we hired someone that knew what they were doing to tell us how to be lawyers. And um, we thought we would be doing landlord-tenant, domestic relations, welfare, social security disability, which I guess did come in the door. But mostly what came in was... Well, a lot of disabled Vietnam veterans who were activists and active um, trying to make change in the community. And um, remember the Bronx VA hospital was the born on the 4th of July hospital in the Tom Cruise movie and in the book by Ron Kovic. So there was activism among the Vietnam veterans around their disabilities relative to the hospital. They never wanted to reside in a hospital. They always wanted to be in the community. And they grew up at a time of civil rights activism for blacks and women. So it seemed natural to organize. And they reached out to the disability community, the civilian disability community in New York, and um, a remarkable thing happened. There was a disability rights movement in, this, in New York City. Um, there was always the push for deinstitutionalization of those with intellectual disabilities, and that was separate and apart from other disability discrimination issues. But when we opened our doors, in came housing, employment, transportation, education, higher education, credit, extensions of credit, every discrimination issue you could think of 
uh, was worked against people with disabilities without any retrib any nobody was there was no retribution there was no nobody was suing anybody nobody was feeling any any pain for doing this to people with disabilities except the victims of the discrimination and so I remember Paul said to me one day I'll take employment you take transportation as if we could actually change things but we actually did change things we were able to get things done um, so things were bad but disabled people always had family and they always had friends Right. So there were always people in their corner. It's never been just people with disabilities versus the world. There was always family and friends. And actually, the Disability Independence Day parade we had the other day, if it, if it illustrated nothing else, it illustrated that people with disabilities have family and friends. Because there was as many able-bodied people in that parade as people with disabilities, and everybody was proud, and everybody was cheering, and everybody was happy, and nobody was angry. Nobody right, was right, angry. This was a day to celebrate, and it was wonderful. That's, that, yeah, that's perfect. I think our communities and our allies, each one of us who um, is personally affected by a disability, it definitely affects a big web of people, and all of those people you know, suddenly understand these realities that a lot of us you know, had no awareness of prior. Um, but every single bit of that really it spreads our movement hugely. And um, of course, we all want everyone to be able to be part of all all uh, aspects of our community, which I think is so important for us to um, all to understand that before the ADA, like you said, uh, the community wasn't really open to us. So, um, yeah. No, you know, some of my early cases, remember the ADA is 1990. So there was lots of disability rights activity prior to ADA. And, uh, you know, a good 15 solid years of disability rights activity. And a lot of the cases would surprise you. Um, it was the law in New York State that you can't deny admission to a place of public accommodation on the, dis on the basis of disability. Mm -hmm. So a woman who was a silver medal, medal medalist in a Paralympic swimming competition showed up at a town pool on Long Island where the only qualification for admission was that you be a resident. And she was a resident. And they told her that she was in a chair with crutches tucked into the back of the chair. She could walk a little. And they told her that people with disabilities could only use the pool between the hours of 12 and 2 on weekday afternoons because those were low-use hours. So black-letter law is you can't deny admission to a place of public accommodation on the basis of disability. That's exactly what they did. And when we met with the commissioner, he was adamant that it was dangerous to do anything else. So we had to sue. And uh, when we sued, the commissioner said disabled people would be dangerous to themselves and dangerous to everyone else in a public pool. And we said, well, how would they be dangerous to themselves? Are they more likely to jump in water they can't swim in than people without disabilities? Why would they want to drown themselves? Mm -hmm. And he realized that that was kind of the wrong act. His view was wrong and said so. But no, yeah, I guess you're right. And I said, and how would they be dis different to ev to, uh, dangerous to everyone else? And he said, well, the lifeguard would pay more attention to them. 
and that would be detrimental to the safety of able-bodied people. Now, this case should have been won on a motion for summary judgment. That means they're pleading, the other side is pleading that they, they're breaking the law. Yes, we deny admission. But the judge wanted to hear the case, so he got to hear the rationale for the discrimination. And when he said that the, the uh, lifeguard would be distracted, I asked him if women in tiny bathing suits might distract the lifeguard. <laughs> and he giggled, and so did the judge. And he said, I guess so. And I said, do you have a rule about that? 12 and 2 on weekdays? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, if they're really tiny bathing suits, I guess we would have to say something. And I said, so the effect would be the same, but the cosmetics are different. Would you agree with that? He said, yes. We lost the case, and the judge said disabled people would be dangerous to themselves and dangerous to everyone else. And my successor at Legal Services, because I had left Legal Services then and came here to United Spinal Association, we were called Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association. And my successor took two years on that appeal to undo the damage we did with a lawsuit we never should have lost. But wow. judges are people too. Right, right. And it's, it's, it's biases. Here, yeah. So that's the environment that the ADA, that brought about the ADA. There were state and local laws, there were some, but they weren't being enforced and there was no collective consciousness about the rights of people with disabilities or what was offensive. How do you, you know, what's discriminatory? And we had to create that, uh, that consciousness. That's perfect. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to, I know you mentioned that you took on the transportation aspect in your legal practice and um, your successful suits against New York City and the Philadelphia Transit Authorities um, to grant access improvements really served as models for other cities and helped uh, eventually frame the ADA's transportation regulations. I really wanted to hear a bit about what that process of fighting to get those two transit authority um, changes, or huge transit authority changes, uh, put into place prior to the ADA when I realized there was probably a lot of um, definitely blockages. Well, and uh, what was the yes. win for you? Well, when I came to Eastern Parallels Veterans Association, now called United Spinal, um, the boss was a guy named Jim Peters, who uh, the Bronx VA Hospital is named after now, the James Gabe Peters Hospital. Uh, Jim was a paralyzed veteran who was not, he's from Brooklyn, but he was not anxious to use public transportation. He liked using his own car. He was a para who could transfer pretty easily, and he liked using his own car with a special boarding permit, but he understood that 80% of the people who work in New York City use public transit, and if disabled people were going to work, and of course, it's always been about work. It's always been about integration and socialization and um, moving up economically, and that is through work. It's the way all minority groups do it. And Jim understood that if we were going to change the status quo for people with disabilities, we had to make transit accessible. And frankly, so did I. And so when he interviewed me for the job, he said, what would be the first thing you'd want to do? And I said, well, remember, I was 20, 28. What would be the first thing you'd want to do? And I said, because it's 40 years ago. 
I said I'd like to see the transit authority, but I haven't had a chance. But every time they buy a bus and it's inaccessible, and every time they renovate a station inaccessibly, they're acting in a discriminatory manner. And I'd like to win that on the New York State Human Rights Law, which just puts commas between status issues, so age, race, sex, marital status, sexual preference, you know, those kind of things that have commas between them. But we know there's a different standard for what's discriminatory for each of those groups. You can say things about and do things to people with disabilities that you can't to other minorities groups. And it, it, it's the same with other minority groups. You know, the, we find our level of comfort, and it changes from time to time. But, you know, as social mores change, but I tried to argue it analogous to a race or a religious discrimination case. Um, you would never say that people, Jews can't get on the bus or black people or it would be discriminatory on its face, but that's the policy that you're using if you're the transit authority. The transit authority actually argued that they do not discriminate against people with disabilities. If people with disabilities want to crawl onto a bus, they will not prohibit it. That's in writing, by the way. Um, yes. Um, so we argued that the law requires non-discriminatory behavior by government agencies in New York State, like the Transit Authority. And that means that you can sit on your hands and do nothing. Remember, this is pre-ADA. You can do nothing if you're going to do nothing. But if you're going to do something, you better do it in a non-discriminatory way. So if you're going to buy, which is action, right? You're, it's a verb. You're going to buy. Or if you're going to renovate, another verb, you're going to do it in a non-discriminatory way. We got a 3-2 split in the appellate division. We won in the lower court. They appealed. We got a 3-2 split against us. Three of them said we were asking for affirmative action, for the Transit Authority to act affirmatively to benefit disabled people, and the law doesn't require that. It merely requires non-discriminatory behavior, which they saw as a passive act, refraining from doing bad things. The two bought our argument hook, line, and sinker. Once you choose to act, you have to act in a non-discriminatory way. These people are not saying you have to buy a single bus or renovate a single station. But what we are saying, the court said, the minority said, is that when you do act, you have to buy a bus that everyone can use, not just people who can walk, and renovate stations in a manner that everyone can use them. And that was under state law. So we were in the minority there. But there was also a law that that describes public buildings, which is capital P, capital B. It was a term of art. Public buildings as buildings built or maintained with state and municipal funds. And it said when they were built, newly built or renovated, they had to be made accessible. And um, the definition of public building included transportation stations and terminals. So we got an injunction preventing subway station renovation. We backed into a $3.5 billion capital plan, which was happening, and we got the injunction right around that time. The MTA's chairman, a person who I respected a lot, but who had no respect for us at all at the time, 
and it hurts you when people you admire think you're crazy, but that was pretty much how we were being dealt with. Um, he told the New York Times, the Daily News, the New York Post, the TV stations, that we had enjoined construction at all subway stations, which wasn't true. It was only 10. Um, and that he wasn't going to renovate stations in your district, assemblyman or senator, unless you changed the law that we got the injunction under. And he took around printed editorials to the newspapers and, you, you know, that the, the transit agency had written as if they wanted them to publish them. And they, they did a hard push to gut the rights of people with disabilities. Mario Cuomo ran for governor in 1982. He took our position uh, against Ed Koch, who was the mayor and was opposing. It was all Democrats opposing us. New York City had no Republican elected officials at the time. 100% of them minus one city council person and one New York State assemblyman opposed us. Every editorial board, including the New York Times, opposed us. The New York Times opposed the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, by the way although you never read that in the Times now when they're celebrating the anniversary of the ADA. Um, Jesse Helms, a bigoted Southern senator opposing the ADA, held the newspaper of the Times over his head and said even this liberal paper opposes the ADA. So um, this was a, a, a bad time for people with disabilities. That people were not acknowledging rights. There had to be a lot of eye-opening and a lot of education. We survived a motion to dismiss the transit case that put us in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. um, the, they hired a Wall Street firm to represent them at that point. Mm -hmm. Transit. The litigation took five years, but two years into it, I got Mario Cuomo to be my friend. When he and then he and then he actually did become the governor. He beat Koch in the primary. Um, Mayor Koch made remarks about people in brown shoes in upstate New York and bad Chinese food in upstate New York, and that cost him the Democratic primary, which I always liked. And uh, uh, Cuomo got elected, and uh, they made, uh, he was lieutenant governor when, before he got elected governor. And the way he got involved with people with disabilities is that the lieutenant governor gets not a lot to do. And one of the things was to be the delegate from New York to the International Year of the Disabled. And he got very involved with the disability community, and it captured his imagination. And the transit stuff was in the newspaper because we kept winning. You know, these little motions and things, we, 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 injunctions, little, we were chipping away. And he was following it, and it captured his imagination. And he said if he's elected, he would support us, and he did. So the extent of that support got us 100 key stations out of 466. Um, that was the most right-thinking Democrats would agree to in 1984, and now it's woefully inadequate. Mm -hmm. um, and they're using paratransit as the workhorse, which we told them would be an expensive nightmare. Okay. Koch said he could do it for $9 million a year for every disabled person in the city without making a single bus or subway accessible. There were hundreds of thousands of accessible bus and subway rides in New York City last month, and we still spent $600 million on paratransit, ADA paratransit last year, 
even with all those 100% accessible buses, which we were the first city in the country to do in 1982, um, they started coming in by late 80s. It was 100%. Um, 100 subway stations and, and still 600 million on paratransit. And that's to say nothing of 350 million on non-emergency medical transportation and ambulettes to New York City facilities by people on Medicaid. 350 million dollars. All of the vocational rehabilitation sponsored transportation, school district transportation, school system transportation, Department of Veterans Affairs, special transit. We're talking about way, way over a billion dollars a year. Right. on special transit, and it's crazy. We have the most extensive mass transit city in the country. If we would have started making it accessible in a wholesale way instead of small doses of accessibility, by now there'd be a generation of transit users that have avoided our transit dependence and would be completely integrated, but it's still a slow process. When we beat them in New York, we had to beat them in Philly. We, I wanted to move on and get into what I thought was the sleeping giant of the future, which is upon us now, which is long-term care mm -hmm. and uh, personal care to make sure people can live safely in the community and independently. But the Philadelphia disability community wanted us to sue there, so we did. We made a better deal in Philadelphia with regard to key stations than we did in New York. Mm -hmm. The only two, the only two old rail cities left. Cleveland had a little rail system, but I'm not counting it. The only two old rail cities left were Boston and Chicago by the time the ADA rolled around. And they hadn't done anything. Mm -hmm. And Chicago was vehemently opposing. They're all Democrats, by the way. Everybody in the city, the four cities I just named, that run these cities and city councils and transit people. They're all Democrats. Yeah. Chicago was really opposing the Americans with Disabilities Act transportation provisions. Um, and they were sending around pictures of wheelchair users with their legs, their foot pedals hanging over the edge of the platform and showing how if they sat like that, their feet would be sheared off when the train pulled in, which is the same way as if an able-bodied person stuck his leg in front of the train. Right. Um, so again, why would you do that? <laughs> you know, like with the swimming pool. But they were trying to intimidate government with that. Um, but there was nothing in it for New York and Pennsylvania legislators if they helped the Democrats from Chicago and Boston avoid making their transit systems accessible because both cities had agreed to do their systems prior to ADA. So we got the, uh, if you read the act and the regulations implementing the act by DOT, New York and Philadelphia were kind of grandfathered in the settlement agreements they signed, mm -hmm. grandfathered them into compliance, assuming they were in compliance with those agreements. So there was nothing to gain by helping Boston or Chicago. As it is, Chicago got an extra 10 years built into the law, even with that, without to get themselves into compliance for heavy rail systems. But that was all. They didn't get out from under. Greyhound got out from under until 1996. 
when they had to start buying accessible over-the-road buses. But they got a pass for a few years. That's, yeah, that's, and it's crazy to hear this, and and just these crazy excuses. Then, but like you said, um, you know, actually distributing these messages, saying that well, you know, if, 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 the people with if you look at around, I'm sorry, Brooke, go ahead. Oh no, yeah, just it's it's amazing me to hear that. You know, we're protecting you by not letting you use our rail system because it's going to hurt you, which is yes. So bizarre to hear, and you know, today in 2019, but um, also, you know, not the, 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 the New York City Council president, who ran UNICEF for many years after that, her name was Carol Bellamy. She was a very liberal politician. She was on the board of the Transit Authority and one of our most outspoken opponents. And at a public hearing, when I got up to speak. They announced James Weissman, Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association, and she said from the podium, you're not a member of the Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association, are you? And I said, as I'm walking up, I went, no, I'm their lawyer. And people in the audience with disabilities started yelling out things. And she said, well, I just wanted to point out that you're not a member. And uh, someone yelled out from the back of the room in the wheel, you know, in a wheelchair, "What's the matter? People with disabilities can't hire lawyers." <laughs> and the chairman of the transit authority was looking at this woman like, "Shut up and let this hearing get, you know, go on." And uh, she she said, "Sir, I can't hear you. If you wouldn't mind, could you stand up?" Oh, and of God. course, that was an invitation. And he screamed out, "If I could stand up, I wouldn't be here." And the whole room got hysterical laughing and applauding. And then she went on. She said to me, won't people with disabilities be victims of crime on the New York City subway? I said, yes. Uh And she said, she said, you'd put them down there anyway? I said, no, I would not. And she said, I thought that's what this is all about. I go, no, no. I don't put disabled people anywhere. They go. They go where they want to go. So we would make the train accessible, and yes, they would go there. And she goes, and be victims of crime. Well, I said to the probably, yes. I mean, to the extent that there's crime there, they would be victims. I said, but who are we talking about? We're talking about poor New Yorkers who are living in substandard housing with with eating substandard food and living in dangerous neighborhoods. And what you're doing for them is keeping them, maintaining the status quo. They're going to be stuck there because you're not letting them go to work. And that is pretty much the argument that we made with transit the whole time. I apologize for the sirens outside my office, if you can hear them. Um, that, that, that is pretty much the argument we made with transit and to the newspapers and the politicians forever was dependence is going to cost you way more than independence. 100%. One time, ca- yeah. yeah, it's one-time capital expenditures. Definitely. And we're just as vulnerable, yeah, being stuck in our homes and depending on other people. There's all kinds of things that are, you know, are worrisome in those situations. But actually having that independence and that freedom to move about the community and, and, you know, uh, improve our lives. Yes, of course, there's risk, but, you know, it's worth it. So I honestly believe that this wouldn't be necessary, though. I believe that in 1975, they passed the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act 
which is now called IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Um, and, and it mainstreamed disabled kids into public schools. And I thought that would be the great equalizer and that by now, how many years later, 25 plus uh, 19, so we're talking about 44 years later, that by now, uh, disability would be like glasses and braces or fat and skinny or race, that it would just be, you know, kind of lost in the sauce because kids would, the school would be uh, a, a great equalizer and a temperer of disabled kids, giving them, you know, the ability to deal with the world outside when they graduate. And of course, the expectations of able-bodied kids or mentally capable kids for their disabled friends that they went to public school with would be different. They would think they'd be competing for the same jobs and girl or boyfriends or, or you know, going to ball games and restaurants and theaters with their disabled friends. And I thought that the schoolyard would cause the integration. But that did not really happen, and not in the way I imagined it would by now. Right, I was right. definitely wrong about that, and I'm glad we did the ADA because I thought the ADA was like wearing a belt and suspenders, that it wouldn't be necessary once the kids from the 70s and 80s and 90s grow up. But it's still quite necessary. Yeah. There's still a lot of discrimination. There, there is, and um, yeah, we have a lot of work still to do. But I am, um, I'm really curious to, um, to understand a little bit more about the actual process once you um, join the team and once the actual framing of the ADA started, and then of course the fight you had to get it signed into law. I'd love to share with have you share with everyone what that looked like. I'm happy to. It's the most exciting thing I've ever done. I mean, everybody can look at events in their life and say it's the biggest event, your marriage, the birth of your children. All those things are big, don't get me wrong. But the ADA was this exquisite coming together of people with disabilities and advocates for people with disabilities from all over the U.S. who had been working independently from each other. There was marginal awareness. Remember, there's no Internet either. There's marginal awareness of what's going on, but there wasn't much newspaper coverage of disability rights issues. So it was hard to find out. Um, there was a brief effort to form a kind of pan-disability organization called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, which was uh, led by Frank Bowe. Frank Bowe mm -hmm. has since passed away. Um, he wrote a book called Handicapping America in the mid-'70s, which basically took an, a number of chapters to say in a very creative, interesting way that appealed both to people with disabilities and people without disabilities, that we are not handicapped. We are people with disabilities who are being handicapped by the society that you guys who are able-bodied have created. And all things being equal, we would not be handicapped. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, that philosophy became the philosophy of the disability rights movement. Non-discrimination got clearly defined by the Americans with Disabilities Act as requiring you to act if it's reasonable. So that instead of passive non-discrimination like, 
you treat blacks like whites or women like men, and you refrain from doing bad things to them because of their status. Instead of that, you had to act reasonably to accommodate or you violated the non-discrimination provisions of the ADA. It took a while to get that. It changes American, <clears throat> excuse me, it changes American civil rights law and, you know, jurisprudence. And it took a while for that to be embraced. But that, that is the big benefit we got out of ADA. And the way I got involved, there were no transit experts willing to help people with disabilities to be the transit expert on the side of the lobbying for the ADA. So in 1988, the bill was introduced at the end of a legislative session in 1988 by Tony Coelho, congressman from uh, California with uh, epilepsy, and uh, who had been kicked out of a seminary studying to be a priest when they discovered his epilepsy. And... Uh, Lowell Weicker, who was the governor, Republican, sorry, senator from Connecticut. Well, Quayle resigned. The, the bill did not pass in 88. And that Congress ended, and that, it's like it never existed, the bill. You have to get it reintroduced. Quayle resigned from Congress, and Weicker lost his election. He, since, he then became governor of Connecticut, but he lost his election. Um, but they had gotten the ball rolling, and uh, in fact, Quelo made a great speech on the floor of the house about his seminary experience and why this is necessary. Um, the bill was reintroduced the next year by Stanny Hoyer from Maryland in the House and Tom Harkin from Iowa in the Senate. Um, this, the House staffers, it was a woman named Melissa Shulman, a young woman who worked for Hoyer. She knew nothing about disability. She became the world's foremost expert on disability rights. She could not have been more supportive. Hoyer was a champion, just a champion. And Harkin and his staffer, Bobby Silverstein, who was legendary, I mean, he got in a shouting match with John Sununu on the staff of the White House. Um, for President Bush. President Bush, as vice president, opposed everything in the ADA. And then, as a candidate for president, endorsed the ADA. So it was, it was marvelous. He ran against Mike Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts then. And, um, Dukakis did not have an ADA position in 88. And I was glad that, uh, Bush won because we were able to hold him to his word. And he supported the ADA. The way I got involved was they didn't have a transit expert. And Liz Savage, who worked for the Epilepsy Society then, I think, and went on to have a great career at the Justice Department. Um, Liz was a lawyer who, uh, visually disabled, who called me and asked me to come to Washington and meet with them about transportation with congressional staffers and disability advocates. I had known Pat Wright from DREDF, Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund. I had known her before, but she became the general of our troops lobbying. Liz became the grassroots organizer 
and was bringing people in and out from meetings. Like she'd call me up and go, do you have a veteran from Louisiana in a wheelchair who can meet with such? An, and, you know, we did. So we, 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 we got people before congressional committees, both officially testifying on the bill and also in their offices. We were thrown out of Bud Schuster from Pennsylvania's office many times, even people in wheelchairs being thrown out um, because he opposed um, accessible transportation. But Norman, he was a transportation committee chair in the House. Norman Mineta, who was a subcommittee chair for surface transit, had been mayor of San Jose, California. He had supported lift-equipped buses and had a good relationship with his disability community. He fought Schuster on it for us, his committee chair. Um, it was exciting, and, you know, we got these hearings in front of Congress where they would say all the silly things that people say about disability because they're just people, the congressmen, and they don't think about disability much. So, of course, they said ridiculous things like, they tried to introduce an amendment to the ADA to stop people who handle food, uh, to exempt the food handling industry, let's put it that way, from coverage by the ADA so that people with uh, AIDS or HIV positive um, couldn't give you AIDS through your food. Um, and we had a, you know, we suffered those kind of amendments. We had Jesse Helms amend the ADA successfully, actually. The food handling amendment didn't pass. The uh, Jesse Helms tried to amend it uh, and successfully so that people with sexual identity disorders, homosexuals, transgender, then he named other things, kleptomaniacs, uh, they're not covered by the, there's a few exemptions that he came up with, um, which were like psychological terms that he knew, I guess. Um, but that would just keep people from working, and it seemed silly because if your disability is job-related, they don't have to hire you if it can't be accommodated. So if you work in a jewelry store and you're a kleptomaniac, it's probably okay not to hire you or to fire you. But if you work in a waste treatment plant, it's probably not a good idea to fire that person because they go on benefits. Um we did explain to Congress that at that time, everyone with AIDS died. So we did explain to Congress that if people could fire you when they found out you had AIDS, because they were trying to exempt AIDS and HIV positive from coverage, then they would die at great expense to government. But if they could work on an employer's group health plan, then they would be very sick and most of their illness would be covered by their employer's group health plan or the COBRA extension of that group health plan. Mm -hmm. And Congress then opted to do the right thing and cover people with AIDS, but it had as much to do with not dying on Social Security um, and Medicare as it did with uh, and dying at ex you know, ex private expense as it did with you know protecting the rights of people with disabilities. So, there, you know, it's ugly whoever says, you know, you shouldn't watch the law or sausage get made. It's right. I mean, the reasons for things are sometimes horrible, but the outcome was pretty good. Um, the, the legal brains of the outfit, I'm a lawyer, but I'm the first to admit that the legal brains <laughs> of the disability lobbying effort uh, were led by Heifel Bloom. Uh, she is a professor at Georgetown Law School now. 
She was with the AIDS Rights Project of the ACLU. And even though she did an amazing, amazing amount of work on the Americans with Disabilities Act, she was not allowed to go to the bill signing at the White House, which I was allowed to go to. I'm on the White House lawn because she worked for the ACLU. And, uh, I mean, times are definitely more charged now politically between the left and right. But President George H.W. Bush, the one that supported ADA, used to call people card-carrying members of the ACLU like that was a bad thing, American Civil Liberties Union. And so Chai was banned from the bill signing because she worked for the ACLU, even though she drafted and worked with the drafting the whole two years. It only took 22 months to do the ADA, which is very short if you think about how long most legislation takes. Um, There was quite a bit of opposition in the beginning, especially to the transportation stuff. But I think when people realized, I mean, elected officials realized the bill was going to pass, they didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so uh, there's probably about 420 yeses um, in the House of Representatives out of the 435. I'm guessing the number, but it was almost, you know, everybody. Uh, but there was quite a bit of controversy. There was a guy named Dana Meyer from Orange County, California, who was trying to keep people with AIDS and HIV out of the the law, of protection from the law, and calling it uh, God's will that they had AIDS. Oh, my goodness. And so, yeah, you know, the atmosphere was bizarre. That's the only way to put it. Um, all of the silly things about disability that we kind of laugh at were coming up when we had hearings in Congress, that we laugh about now, and then also these horrible things like it's God's will that you have a disability or that you have AIDS, or and and you know it's it it, it was depressing, but we knew we were doing something important. It was really heady stuff. We knew it. We knew it would change the world. Um, there are things you know that you do in your life that you don't realize the significance of. This was not one of them. Congress really forced us, you know, the staffers and the elected officials themselves to see what a big deal this was, even if, even if you didn't think it was. I always did think it was. But there was a, a, a very different time politically. The left and the right could agree on the right thing, on doing the right thing, whereas now it's almost impossible to get them to agree on anything. Um, if it was mother, if, yeah, if motherhood and apple pie were introduced in the House of Representatives, um, if if the Democrats now were on the side of motherhood and apple pie, it would pass by a straight party line vote, and that's insane. It would there wouldn't be a Republican to vote for it. And of course, we think of the Americans with Disabilities Act as motherhood and apple pie. I always saw it that way. I I never saw the other side of this. We're talking about human beings who could be productive. If you oppose it, you're making a huge error. Is the only way I've always looked at it. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's not budgetary. I mean, obviously, humanity-wise, it's a terrible decision, but also budgetary, which, as you're saying, was such an impactful um, argument and continues to be. Um, it just makes sense. So, so the uh, we had some interesting disputes. Congressman Dingell was trying to keep people with mental disabilities out of the ADA both intellectual and uh, emotional disabilities. Um, 
because he didn't want Tourette's people with Tourette's to be on Amtrak. I mean, I, it was crazy as that. So we pointed out that people with Tourette's don't need ramps and elevators to get on Amtrak. They're probably on there now. And uh, he didn't want his grandchildren, he said, taking the train to Washington and hearing them screaming out obscenities. And we said, well, they don't need ramps and elevators. They're screaming out obscenities now, and it's not a problem. It must not be happening. And uh, he was adamant about it. We got Michigan advocates to... Uh, contact him and he was angry that we did that and then we got the president of Amtrak to uh, to tell him uh, that they don't want to do diagnoses that people with the fare are going to be getting on the train regardless of disability and that if they put black people off the train for being black they don't want protection from civil rights laws they want to be sued it's a bad thing to do and that's they, they feel the same way about disability and that was great you know, there was, there was some enlightened people in there, but um, you had to undo a lot of years of the way people thought about disability. There was no collective consciousness at all about what's offensive and what's not. So that unnecessary protectionism and patronization was looked at as the milk of human kindness. And calling it a discriminatory practice offended a lot of people who only looked at people's motivation. If you're starving, it doesn't matter why. <laughs> if you're starving because you can't make a living, if it's because they're trying to protect you, or saying no disabled people allowed, the effect is exactly the same, you're not working. Mm -hmm. So we had to create this collective consciousness. And I think to an extent we have. Um, there's still that way of driving through poor neighborhoods and not caring or acknowledging it in your brain but not doing anything about it. So there's still that atmosphere surrounding disability. Everybody knows things are still wrong and they're not doing anything about it in the non-disabled community unless we kind of put it in their face and tell them and ask them and cajole and persuade. But at least people with disabilities... If ADA did anything, it, it heightened expectations and made people aware of rights. And uh, I think it did that for both able-bodied people and people with disabilities. So I, I agree. I expectations is what we're what we're talking about, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I I, I wholeheartedly know that my life um, with a disability, which has been the last 17 years um, for me is uh, greatly improved. There's a lot of things I, especially in the beginning, I actually had to learn learn a bit about what the, what society wanted out of me or what they expected out of me with a disability. And it was often far less than, than what I wanted for myself or what I even imagined. Um, the limitations I ever would have imagined are placed on myself. And that has been definitely a hard reality. And um, of course, there's this per pervasive bias that um, that's penetrates, penetrates through most levels of our society. But here in 2019, I do think um, accessibility and inclusion have come a long way. And um, at least we generally know there's something we can do about it. There are protections, and that, that's pretty huge. Um, I did want to ask you about your thoughts on, on what you think is needed now and what the future of large-scale legislation is going to be necessary to alleviate the, balance, the imbalance that we still 
feel um, for those of us who really want to have long and successful, healthy lives despite having a disability. Yes, it, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this issue for on and off for years about what's the big issues of the future. So I mentioned earlier in the call that home care and personal care and long-term care, whatever we're going to call it, that's going to still be a giant issue for people with disabilities. Um, we don't have enough. It's not an industry that people choose to go in. It's a, a home care is agencies are employers of last resort, people who can't get work other places, for the most part work for home care agencies. Um, we have to make it into a profession. Um, probably for millennia, the worst job in a community was garbage man, and then garbage man meant union and benefits and retirement and health care, and it's no longer the worst job in a community. Um, personal care attendant does not mean union, for the most part, does not mean union and benefits and retirement and pension plan and paid vacation. We have to make it mean that. We have to make people want to have a career in home care um, because people are going to live to be 100 years old, and the need for home care is going to be acute whether you're disabled or not. Don't tell me that if you live to be 90, you're going to be in great shape. You're going to need assistance. and people don't die anymore, you know, they you stay alive. And so you're living in the community and you want to remain active. We're going to need home care and we're going to need a source for home care. The reason I bring that up is that we have an immigration problem in the United States. <clears throat> and if you look at who's performing home care, it's probably mostly legal immigrants, but there's plenty of illegal immigrants doing it off the books. We know that. But this is a, a, a entry-level employment for new immigrants, and we should find a way to keep people living in the community with uh, the immigrant population being employed doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one enormous issue is home care, and it's going to stay with us. Uh, I think another enormous issue is su workplace supports. Right now, our benefit system pays you to stay home. It encourages you to be too disabled to work because if you can work, you don't get Social Security disability. If you don't get Social Security disability, you don't get Medicare unless you're 65. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> we have to take the money that we use to pay people to stay home and use it to make people productive. Mm -hmm. So if you need home care or chore service, in order to be able to get to work, suppose you need somebody to, to help you dress and get you out in the morning and do the, do the reverse at night. But other than that, you could work productively. Mm -hmm. um, or suppose you needed help a couple of times a week uh, bathing and, and, and toileting or a few times a week. Uh, but other than that, you could be productive. Wouldn't it be silly to force you to stay home and not work just to get the care you need? Yes, for as somebody who requires um, close to full-time care and who also works, um, the process of, of navigating both of those uh, entities in my life is infuriating and um, really difficult and something that's such a barrier for many that um, either definitely have to just stay home and take what they're given, even though they have so much to contribute, or they are able to work. But for some of us, you know, it's not necessarily profitable. Um, I think it's important, but that, that's not okay. That's not what the system is in place for. Right. 
And then I guess the last issue is new products and, and, and technology. Technology is going to be a tremendous boon to people with disabilities. It already is, and it will continue to be, but new products, for example, autonomous vehicles, um, have to be accessible. First generation, I don't want to hear about it, that it's going to be developed and then we'll get to you because then we become an expensive add-on. We become a, a change order. We become you got to change the way you do things, and that's burdensome to people. Where it should just be that people with disabilities are included in the mix, no matter what it is. If you're setting up a rideshare company like Uber or Lyft, or if you're developing autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, in other words, um, they should be accessible. First generation. We're not talking about rocket science. Now, if you look at autonomous vehicles, there's sensors and controls all over the outside of that vehicle. You cannot bring it to a vehicle converter and have them move things around and cut into the car or into the van. Um, and the concept of car, because you'll have an you know, you can't move the sensors and controls without causing accidents. Mm -hmm. But the concept of car ownership will change because if you live like most of us are going to, the demographics show, in urbanized or suburbanized areas, there's going to be self-driving car companies most likely, and you summon one, and it takes you where you want to go, and then it goes back to its owner. And you may not have to buy a car, which is why these vehicles have to have at least some models that are accessible. Um, all public transit, whether they're operated by autonomous vehicles or not, will be accessible because it's already the law under the ADA. But that's not true for privately owned vehicles. And there is a huge problem developing as these cars are being developed right now because despite the fact that we're working hard with the manufacturers, um, they are still feeling like we are a second-generation problem. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, that that having those stop gaps and, and when we're going back in to do these things later, it costs so much more and obviously is a detriment to our community of people who need access now. So it, it doesn't make any sense. Yes, you might remember the MV1, which was the accessible, almost like an SUV car that was being manufactured a few years ago, and they went out of business. One of the things, you, you, they had a permanent driver's seat installed with a space next to the driver for a person in a wheelchair. And when we met with them when they were developing the car, it was already in production, um, we said you should have the driver's seat be removable. Um, and you, you should be designing this car so that it's drivable by people in wheelchairs. And they said, we'll get to it. And in my, we don't want to retool now. And in my opinion, that cost them dearly yeah. um, because our members want to drive themselves if they can. Great. Well, our members and young people with disabilities, they don't want to be the passenger. They don't want to depend on the kindness of strangers or always be the guy with the pocketbook in his lap that his wife is pushing the wheelchair. They, they want to be in charge. Like They want to take charge of their lives. And it's hard to just be... A passenger, if you don't have right. to be. Yeah, you know, the nature and extent of disability, of course, is different. And we're only talking about, to the maximum extent, feasible when we talk about rights and integration. We don't want danger. 
Um, it's not a discriminatory practice to deny a person a job as a bus driver who can't see. Right. So we're, we, we, we've never argued that people should be put in risky positions or should put the public in risky positions. Right. But all, all we're talking about now is including us in the mix of people mm -hmm. you intend to serve. And I believe that government needs to pass laws to require it because this is a capitalist nation and we exploit soft spots to make money. And if you look at what's happened, we'll just look at the Affordable Care Act. It says no caps on lifetime benefits, on annual benefits, on medical costs, but you can put a cap on durable medical equipment and medical supplies so that wheelchairs, ostomy supplies, diabetic supplies, that's where insurers and Medicaid can cap, and that's what they do, and that hurts us. But what are they going to do? They, they, they can't cap lifetime benefits. And they have to control costs, so they look to what they can control. And government gave them an invitation to discriminate on the basis of disability when it comes to, for example, wheelchairs. You can't get an insurance policy that covers a $30,000 wheelchair. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it'll be 2500 annual or 5000 annual benefit or even 1500 And how can you tell an employee, well, 28500 of this chair is your responsibility? When the guy is making forty or fifty thousand right. dollars, so what do they do? They stay home and they don't work. Yeah. So it's a it's a giant circle of all these things that depend on each other. All these problems have to be solved to make people as independent as they possibly and self sufficient as they possibly could be. But I think we're moving in the right direction as opposed to the wrong direction. We have setbacks. <laughs> yeah, you definitely see that there's progress being made. It's just sometimes very convoluted. But um, I, I really, the last question I wanted to ask you is just um, how do you think and what are the most important ways you think members of our community can be in, impactful in this process of, dri of driving these necessary changes, using their own stories and experiences um, to just really shape making our, our access and, and our world more inclusive and accessible? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is not being involved. But showing up and being in the face of decision makers is very important. Even if you don't win today, you're in their brain. Um, you, you, it's hard to say no to your face. And, of course, they get good at saying no to your face, elected officials, but it's harder. And... There's not a logical other side to our arguments. Our arguments are a lot like rebutting blondes are dumb. Blondes aren't dumb, or at least they're no dumber than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And and it's pretty easy to say blondes aren't dumber than everybody else, and nobody's like, there's no blondes are dumb crowd. There's not a blondes are dumb lobby pushing back. There's no knowledge that anybody has that's innate that makes blondes dumber. And it just kind of goes away, that argument. Disability's kind of, our arguments are kind of like that. Um, One-time only capital expenditures are a lot better than lifetime dependency benefits. Mm -hmm. And that's, we've made a bargain with the devil when we say, well, we're going to use paratransit as the workhorse, or we're going to give people food stamps and rent and, 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 uh, 
uh, all kinds of benefits if they're poor, but nothing if they're not. Um, these are bad deals for everyone, especially taxpayers who are paying to keep people out of the mainstream. So what would I say to people with disabilities? A couple of things. Go to public hearings. Go to public meetings. Know your legislators. I'm talking about local elected officials. I'm not talking about even congressmen. <clears throat> know them. Go to meetings. Shake their hand. Talk to them. Volunteer for candidates. By the way, it's a great way to get a job. Uh, if you're a person with a disability who can't, having trouble getting a job, volunteer for a local elected official. Make yourself an essential part of that person's election effort. They'll know you're competent, and when they win and they have jobs to give out, you'll get one. It happens over and over again. Um, I know people break into the labor force and into government by working for people running for office when they're running. Um, but even hearing for elected officials or government agencies will get you in the door. Getting in the door changes people's perception and also might eventually get you real employment. I well, I like change, and I like pushing for change. I always say I'm a lawyer. I don't care how you feel. I care how you act. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you think about how racists and sexists have changed, well, <laughs> until recent news, have changed over the years, they conceal their behavior because they know it's not socially acceptable but there's still racists and sexists out there. They just know what not to do and say. Well, if you're not doing it or saying it, then it goes away. You might still feel that way, but your children won't because they haven't observed your behavior, your bad behavior. Um, I think that there's a lot like that with disability. I think disability, as people with disabilities are out there in the community, people's attitudes towards disability change. Um, when I talk about disabled people now to my able-bodied neighbors or friends, they complain about the number of handicapped parking spaces that aren't used. And that's the nature and extent of how much they think about disability. When we talk about some of the nuanced issues with, about disability to them, all of a sudden it's an eye-opening thing. People aren't inherently mean. Um, and if I think for the most part, when you explain to the public the plight of people with disabilities, they're sympathetic. It's the people in government that have to balance the books that worry about re-election and think, well, people with disabilities may not hurt me as much as elderly people or women or whatever it is they're, gonna, they're willing to spend on. So we have to be out there. We have to make them think that there are consequences. Um, to, um, you know, people's reticence about affording people rights and acknowledging right. rights. Yeah, no, I think um, just being out there and showing people our lives and explaining when we can and whether that, you know, if that, that the result of that is just done in the community and changing those biases just by showing that, um, you know, we <laughs> we need these things. We are just as though we can contribute just as much. Yeah. There's one more thing I, was, I should say is that the, remember I said they people just able-bodied people talk to me about this too much handicap parking and stuff. Mm -hmm. The the uh, the other thing they they talk about is frivolous lawsuits. 
the drive-by lawsuits, barrier removal lawsuits, where their barriers don't even really have to be removed, but people find some little thing and sue over it. Mostly unscrupulous lawyers uh, promoting this stuff with uh, uh, willing plaintiffs who are disabled. Um, that is a bad thing, and it really is going on, and I frown on it. It's not how the statute should be used. I don't believe the statute needs to be amended to stop it um, and would oppose any amendment to it, but I do believe we should be condemning serial plaintiffs and lawyers who go down the block and sue everybody and abuse the statute. We don't need 12-year-olds uh, suing strip clubs because they're inaccessible. And, uh, you know, by the way, that did happen. That's why I'm saying it, because I just sued everybody. <laughs> you know, it's embarrassing when those things happen, and it's not what we we want. We got a call from a hotel owner in New Jersey who was being sued, and he's reading me the complaint, and one of the paragraphs in the complaint is that his pool is inaccessible. And, I, and he said, that's not true. I said, the pool is accessible because we don't have a pool. So you can see what kind of a complaint this was. This was a form complaint. They they left one inapplicable section in by mistake, but they've done it over and over again. And that gives a bad name to the disability movement who doesn't don't act like that anyway. I mean, overwhelmingly, the, the, the overwhelming majority, 99% of people with disabilities, when they're confronted with discrimination, just move on. they got to get on with their life. They don't have time to go make the world safe for democracy. So, uh, you know, the, the, the tiny portion that Sue we should be able to accommodate, and we should punish the lawyers that are abusing the statute. Right, and we need to change that conversation. That um, you know, the, the friends that you know that are unaware of exactly disability think that that is a major problem. Of, you know, of people with disabilities, and that of course is not. That's really um, terrible. That that's the the overarching conversation that's happening around our conversation and and our quest for access. Because you know, Mayor Koch, Mayor Koch predicted, and when we sued them in '79 to make buses and subways accessible, Mayor Koch predicted. Able-bodied people would be furious waiting for bus lifts to go up and down and wheelchair users to board and deboard. The When the first lift-equipped buses arrived in New York, people broke into spontaneous applause on buses when wheelchairs would board. And they would say things like, it's great to see our tax money doing something for somebody. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that is what the great majority of people without disabilities think about the integration of disability, people with disabilities into the mainstream. I don't think that gets in the newspaper. I don't think that gets on TV. But I think that's what the, the vast majority of people feel. I also think the vast majority of people have friends and relatives who are disabled. They just don't think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And if they do have a severely disabled friend or relative, they think of their severely disabled friend or relative as the exception to the rule. Well, they're really smart, or they're really productive, or they could really do this, right? But they don't feel that way about other people with disabilities. And that's the part that's missing that I thought would happen with the Education for Handicapped Children's Act or IDEA now. 
that's the part I thought we'd get, is that it wouldn't just be your disabled guy. It would be every disabled guy that you felt like that about. You'd look at everybody, and the Imperato, who used to run AAPD, and now runs the Association of University Centers for People with Disabilities. Um, he, he used to say that everybody can work, every single person can work with the right supports. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's worth it to do it. I mean, there's going to be a point where there's a point of diminishing returns where the support is greater than the work product. Costs more than the work product, but um, there's, there's there's going to be a balance where that levels off. But that should be our approach to this. Um, you'd think that work was a wonderful thing, but you know it, it it is work. It's not you know it's hard and it's difficult, but it's the way to elevate yourself sociologically, economically, and I mean sociologically in the eyes of able-bodied people. If you are working side by side with a disabled guy doing the exact same job as him, when he wants to marry your daughter, what are you going to be thinking? I mean, he does what you do. He's as productive as you are. If your boss is disabled, you might not like him, but it's got nothing to do with his disability. It, it has everything to do with his status. He can tell you what to do. That it, so the the labor force is the answer, um, and you need as much access to the built environment as possible, so that you can access the labor force easily, fluidly, so that it's not more difficult for you to work than everybody else. And of course, with physical disability, it's going to be somewhat difficult, but you want to make it as smooth as possible for people, so that they don't go on benefits unnecessarily. Right, and that invitation and option needs to be there to welcome us into the workforce and support us right. while we're there for our success. I and yeah, right. there's, it's huge. It's one of the biggest. Um, that's the pinnacle kind of of at this point. Um, thank you so much, Jim, for your time today and all of your important contributions um, to our community. It, it, it means a lot. Um, I wanted to encourage all of our listeners to take some extra time to learn about the ADA and visit unitedspinal.org and our disability rights section to find out important ways you can be involved in improving access and awareness needed for all of us to live our best lives. Um, I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Hello, thank you, Brooke, and you too, and really thank you for the opportunity today. You're listening to United on Wheels, the web's best podcast for active wheelchair users. Connect with United Spinal on Twitter via United Spinal. Follow United Spinal Association on Facebook. Thanks for listening.